Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode of the podcast, we're joined by journalist Hadley Freeman, who speaks about her personal experience with anorexia. In conversation with journalist, writer and editor Barry Weiss, Freeman draws on her harrowing account of this complex condition from her new book, Good Girls. Here's Barry with more. I am so excited to introduce the brilliant Hadley Friedman. Hadley is a staff writer at the Sunday Times and was previously at The Guardian for more than two decades. Her first book is called House of Glass, The Story and Secrets of a 20th Century Jewish Family, which I highly recommend. It was a Sunday Times bestseller. And her new book is called Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia, which I read in one sitting, which almost never happens considering the fact that I have a six-month-old at home, and I'm so thrilled to talk about it today. Hadley, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi, Barry. Thanks so much for for having me on. Thrilled you're here. Hadley, by all accounts, you were a really happy child. You loved singing in the house. You loved your gym uniform. You liked being the American in your British school. And you loved all the normal things, it seems to me, that middle school girls love. And then, just before your 14th birthday, you did something very out of character and very strange. You stopped eating. Here's how you write about the moment when everything changed. It was a warm spring day in London when I lost myself entirely and my mind and body became possessed by a stranger. It was the transformation of a minute, a shuddering loss of innocence, a single comment, and the way I saw the world changed forever. Take us back to that single comment, that single moment. What happened that day that changed your world? So it was the end of what we in England call PE class and what in America we call gym class. And we were all sitting around a circle around the teacher. And I was sitting next to a girl who in the book I called Lizzie, who was um, very tiny. And I looked at my legs next to hers and I noticed how much skinnier her legs were than mine. And I said to her without really thinking about it, is it hard to buy clothes when you're so small? And she said, you know, not meaning to say anything cruel at all. She said, yes, I wish I was normal like you. And to me, this, it was like something cracked inside of me that never really fully repaired. When I heard normal, what I heard really was not special, average, boring. And it was that day that I started to stop eating. The words trigger and triggering are words that sort of get thrown around a lot these days. But it seems to me reading this book and hearing you tell that story that you actually had a very clear trigger and it was that word normal. Let's just like go a little bit deeper in what was contained in that word for you. Um, you know, all kids, I think, want to be special in some ways. Like you said, I really liked being the American in my English school. I, I wanted to have an identity. I think all kids or a lot of young people look for an identity because that explains who they are to themselves and explains who they are to others. And to hear normal, that just meant no identity. There was nothing special about me. Um, But you're right, it was a very specific trigger, but also it's not the trigger that made me anorexic, which is why I find people's obsession with triggers and trigger warnings sort of missing the point, to be honest. It's, you know, anything would have triggered me. Like it could have been anything else that day, the next, the day after. The reason I was triggered was this accretion of life events in the past and how I processed them in my emotions. And then something just needed to push me over the edge. And that's what the trigger is. It's not the cause. It's just the little thing that pushes you over. 
So it's like a bomb had been building inside of you and it was just waiting for the spark. Mm, exactly. And I, I just think the way people obsess over triggers just shows them trying to have control, really. They're trying to stop their child getting ill or stop themselves from getting upset when the thing is not the trigger. It's it's the emotions and the, the cause for the upset inside. That's the problem. I want to get in a little bit to our misconceptions about anorexia, which this book really challenged the way that I had thought about the disease. Let's stay in time for a minute. You have this moment in the gym where Lizzie says, I wish I was normal like you. What happens after that? Like how quickly did things spiral out of control? Almost instantly. You know, some uh, girls, it takes a while. There's a buildup. You know, they, they become vegetarian or maybe they become interested in healthy eating or exercise for a little bit and they dabble on and off with dieting and then they go to college and then they really spiral out of control. But for me, it was just instant. I remember going home that afternoon and I always used to eat loads when I'd get home from school. I'd often have like two bowls of cereal while watching TV. And I suddenly thought, oh, no, no, I, I can't do that anymore. And really consciously sitting there and not eating an after school snack. And then the next day I wasn't eating the lunch at school and things just really escalated. I'm like Very soon I wasn't eating breakfast or lunch. I wasn't eating any sweets. I used to have two chocolate bars or candy bars, as we say in America, every day. That went out right away. I mean, the other thing is I was only 14 and very emotionally immature. So I had no idea how to lose weight. So I just thought, oh, you don't eat. Like It's not like I had some conscious plan, like cut down carbs, cut down fats. So I just thought, oh, right, you don't eat. Like that, that was it for me. Tell us about the first time that you get checked into a psychiatric ward. Basically, the book you write, you, you have this journal entry in 1995 where you write in your diary, I just spent three years of my life in mental hospitals, so why am I crazier than I was before? And you basically track for us these four hospitals that you spend time in. You spent much of your life between the ages of 14 and 17 in various psychiatric wards in London. I would say trying to get better, but really much of the time, it seems like the professionals in your life or the family members in your life are trying to help you get better. Take us back, if you would, to your first experience walking into Hospital One and your parents' understanding of what was happening to you, your understanding of what was happening to you as a 14-year-old. It was it, the first hospital was a private, well-known psychiatric hospital um, in London, and the doctor. I'd seen the doctor a few days before, and he said to me, "You know, if you are anorexic, but if you can eat this cookie at home, then we can try to create an eating plan for you." And I went home, and my mom tried to feed me an Oreo, and I I absolutely couldn't do it at all. Just the thought of how unbelievably guilty and fat I'd feel afterwards just it was just impossible, and the anorexia is what. It was the first sort of experience I had where I wasn't being a people pleaser. Like all, all my childhood, I was a people pleaser and trying to make my parents happy. And here was something where I absolutely couldn't make my parents happy. I would not eat. So I was checked into this hospital. My parents were, I think, I mean, for my father, I think he thought, um, you know, she'll be, just get the food in her and she'll be okay. And I think probably my mom thought the same too. You know, they hadn't had experience of hospitalization before. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be fine. Like I just kind of lie in bed all day and it's going to be a bit like the Madeline books. And, you know, a nurse brings me broth occasionally. <laughs> and I won't have to fight with my mom all the time. This is going to be terrific. And we sat down in this room and it was a really nice room because it was a private hospital that I got on my dad's health insurance. And the doctor said to me, okay, you're going to stay here until you weigh this amount. And hearing those words, it was like the crack that had started when uh, my friend described me as normal. It's like I fully splintered at that point. I became absolutely hysterical. And any parents out there of anorexics or watching this will recognize this moment where I just started screaming, begging my parents to take me home, telling them that this was a mistake. I was wrong. I would eat two you know, packs of cookies, um, begging, begging, bargaining. And that is what almost all anorexics do when they are checked into hospital. 
Here's one thing that you write in the book that I was really struck by. You say this, anorexia is probably the most widely discussed of mental illnesses because the media and the public are always going to be fascinated by extremely thin girls and young women. But it's also one of the least understood. People think it's about wanting to be thin. They think it's just a matter of refeeding the patient. And they think it's a modern illness that's simply a response to modern preoccupations. Wrong, 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 you write. So let's take each of those in turn. First, tell me why anorexia isn't about the food, why it's not about wanting to be thin. It's definitely not about wanting to be thin. It's about wanting to look ill. It sort of astonishes me how people still don't understand that. I mean, we've all seen photos of Karen Carpenter. Do you think she was trying to look like a supermodel? I mean, when you see those photos of her and she's on death's door, no, she's trying to look ill. You know, anorexics know that, you know, Christy Turlington or whoever is a famous supermodel now, you know, eat more than 200 calories a day or whatever. Like they're trying to look ill because they're trying to communicate without articulating it, that they're angry, that they're unhappy, that they're anxious. Those are the feelings that underlie it. And those are feelings that are communicated, you know, through the food, yes, but mainly through the anorexic's body. Girls and women know that you know, the first thing people see when, when people look at girls and women is, is how they look. So therefore, the loudest way they can communicate something is through their body. So a lot of girls and women are scared of articulating bad, quote unquote, feelings, you know, because they're supposed to be good little girls, they're supposed to be people pleasers. So the way they articulate them is through their body. That's why the vast majority of anorexics are female, the vast majority of bulimics are female. It's why so many girls cut. And, you know, there are other ways that girls and women now express unhappiness and discomfort with womanhood through their bodies. You say that it's not about refeeding the patient. What is it about? Well, I mean, it it has to start. It starts off refeeding the patient. To be fair, because often they're, you know, in danger of themselves. That's why they get checked into hospital. Also, they can't really get a glimpse of what recovery is like until they're well enough to imagine life without the anorexia. And you can't do that when you're when you're severely underweight. But it's about learning to express feelings in a way and articulate your feelings and accept that unhappiness and anger and anxiety are normal parts of life and that you're not a bad person for feeling those um, emotions. The last thing you say is that you blow up and you do this in such a powerful way in the book, the notion that anorexia is a modern disease. Tell us about, I mean, you really trace sort of like the roots of girls' sort of self-erasure, self-abnegation, the idea that this was considered saintly. Tell us a little bit about the historical antecedents, because most of us think Kate Moss, right? And you like, I, honestly, like I'm sort of the same age as you. And I was remember, I was taken back to my 13 13- year. And the girls that had the, in my view at the time, the discipline to have the low fat yogurt for lunch and the picture of Kate Moss hanging in the locker. But you really take us back sort of centuries. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, So people have heard about their medieval saints, the teenage girls, often 13 year olds who would starve themselves. You know, this is part of medieval lore. And they were seen as saintly and they'd be often checked into nunneries or else they would die. Um, And this one professor of eating disorders who actually treated a lot of friends of mine when I was um, in Hospital One, um, who's still working now, Professor Hubert Lacey, he wrote an amazing paper about what he calls the original anorexic, who's this person who's now worshipped as St. Wilgie Fortis, who lived in about the 8th century, who um, was promised by her father to a man when she was about 12 years old. And instead she stopped eating. 
looking. And she's often portrayed in art with a beard because anorexics often get hair all over their bodies in an attempt for their bodies trying to keep them warm. And her suitor did not want to marry a bearded skeleton, unsurprisingly. And so he left. And her father was so outraged by this that he had her crucified. And she um, allegedly, while on the cross, said that she had unencumbered herself of female passions. And this, to me, this story is so interesting. And Professor Lacey also shows, you know, that this was an example of a girl starving herself to avoid you know, the kind of the womanhood um, occupation of having to be married. And a lot of the girls, when you read about them in the medieval literature, they were starving themselves when they'd been promised to a man by their father when they were about 12 or 13 years old. And they were promised to the neighbor who was about 30 years old. And they would starve themselves and go to a nunnery instead. And they were worshipped at the time for their holiness. And, you know, if they died, it was seen as holiness gone too far. In the same way that anorexics today, people say, you know, it's perfectionism gone too far. In all those cases, those cases back 800,000 years ago or today, those are examples of girls trying to seize control in a certain way. And the only way they can do that is through their bodies and through restricting their food. Now, there's some historians who say you can't really compare these medieval saints with modern anorexics. And I do believe that. I don't think we should apply you know, our modern ideologies to people in the past. But the fact is, in all cases, modern anorexics, medieval saints... Like I say, these are girls who were resisting adult womanhood. You know, they d- these girls didn't want to be married. In my case, I did not want to be a teenager. And they opted out of the life that their parents had laid out for them by restricting their food. And I think that's fascinating that for women back then and women today, this was seen as the only way they could control their lives was restricting their food. What was it about being a teenager that so terrified you? Well, I was a very emotionally immature 14-year-old. I, you know, I, I definitely was. And there were a few things. First, I was absolutely terrified of boys. I'd gone to an all-girls school, and I had no idea what the kids at, at my camp, I used to go to this Jewish summer camp for eight weeks. Every summer, I had no idea what the girls were doing when they'd be like taking their T-shirts off with the boys behind the cabin and sticking tongues into the boys' mouths. Like All this just seemed horrific to me. I just couldn't understand what was going on. And I knew that other people my age got this and enjoyed it. They liked making out with boys at parties. Whereas I just wanted to stay home and watch, you know, rom-coms with my parents. And the other part was I was terrified of leaving my mother. I really, I, I could see that, you know, childhood would be the end of our closeness is how I saw it. And at the same time, I was scared of hurting her by going away. So for me, stopping eating was both a way to try to stay close to her and also a way to try to break away from her a bit at the same time in a very confused way without hurting her feelings. Because we'd be like, I was moving away from her, but it was sick. So it wasn't my fault. So with anorexia, there's a lot of dual things going on. Um, You know, there's a bid for independence by the child. You know, I'm doing something that you can't protect me from parents. And also they're asking for their parents to take care of them. I'm sick. Take care of me. Um, It always comes on in adolescence and in puberty, anorexia. And I think it really shows how difficult becoming a teenager is for a lot of girls. Um, You know, your body is changing. And some girls enjoy that. And other girls, they still feel like a child inside. And suddenly they have these breasts that men are staring at. And that is very, very scary. And also they may feel that things are now expected of them. They're supposed to know how to, you know, French kiss a boy, or they're supposed to know how to dance and stuff like that. And if if you don't, you just want to stay a child. Well, anorexia is a great way of staying a child. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. 
Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. One of the things I remember so clearly from being in middle school with the, you know, the Kate Moss, Calvin Klein posters that people would have in in their lockers was this feeling from the adults in our lives. And I was not one of the people that managed to have low fat yogurts at lunch. Uh, That was like the other girls that were the cool, like that was the great divider. Right. And the thing I remember from the adults in our lives was this sort of I don't know if hysteria is too strong a word, but this sense that heroin chic, which was so in at the time, this waif-like look among models, was causing the anorexia. Explain to us why those people were wrong, if they were. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it incredibly insulting when people say things like that. And it just really shows a certain kind of misogyny in society because anorexia is, is suffered very largely by women. So this attitude that it's just silly girls wanting to look like fashion models just shows how low respect is for girls and women. You know, no one says that alcoholism is caused by beer adverts. You know, alcoholism is suffered, you know, by many, many men. And no one would demean it in that kind of way, saying, oh, you've just watched too many Heineken adverts. The culture provides the lexicon through which girls and women can express themselves. So, you know, sure, everyone is around you is telling you that thin is in. You can sort of think, okay, this is this is one way to be a good girl. But I'd never seen a fashion magazine when I stopped eating. You know, it was totally, totally irrelevant to me. The only time fashion magazines played a role in my illness is when I would come out of hospital and I'd still be expected to put on weight. I would then, you know, look at cover of Vogue and be like, well, she's got a massive thigh gap. Why does, why do I have to put on weight? And she doesn't. But the thing is, I didn't, like I said, I didn't want to look like a model. I was expressing anger. It went beyond that. Of course, you know, the anorexic will latch onto anything that justifies what they're doing. So a lot of anorexics do talk a lot about models and fashion magazines, but that's not the cause. You know, in the same way, I would say religion was not the cause of these medieval girls starving themselves. It gave them a good context and it gave them a lexicon Mm. to which to express it, but it wasn't the cause. So these days, right, 
and you sort of make reference to this in the book, you're going through this experience, this disease in the 90s. This is before pro-ana, pro-anorexic sites. It's before Tumblr and Reddit and now TikTok and all of these sort of, and maybe you would disagree with this language, these sort of like self-reinforcing things. How do you understand the role that technology is playing to create, and again, correct me if you don't like this language, a kind of contagion? Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely doesn't help. Um, and from the girls I interviewed for the book, because I said to them, you know, I wasn't around with, you know, these Instagram sites. And so how does this hurt your recovery in a way? For all of them, they said it didn't make them anorexic. It just made it harder to recover, particularly with girls on um, Instagram. They would then have a community of other girls going through it. And often there was a kind of humble brag element mm. to the Instagram girls. It'd be someone allegedly like kind of posting pictures of their recovery, but actually just showing, you know, how much thinner they were getting. And it's quite hard to leave that community behind. You know, my analog version of that was, you know, every time I left hospital, my doctors would always say not to keep in touch with the girls I'd become friends with in there because you're then locked into that anorexic community mindset. So, you know, the media changes, whether it's Vogue or TikTok or whatever, but ultimately an anorexic will look for anything to justify not getting better is, you know, so the media changes, but the mentality is always the same. But there's a competitive element even that you describe in your book. You know, you describe this one hospital that frankly sounds like hell on earth, where essentially it's a room of incredibly, incredibly sick girls with a long table in the middle where you're basically forced to eat three meals a day and then three snacks a day. And what you describe is, you know, the sickest of the girls, one who's been force fed by a feeding tube, essentially is like the queen of the table because she's been proven to be the most sickly. So sure, it's not happening on Tumblr or TikTok or Instagram or whatever, but that same competitive element is still there in the hospital, even among the horrifically sick, some of whom tragically die from the disease. I mean, that that is kind of the problem with anorexia wards um, in that the girls and women are there for three to six months. You know, it's very different from an A&E ward when you're in and out in three days. So it's all girls and women, almost invariably. And anorexics are very competitive. You know, they always want to be the ones who've eaten the least, who weigh the, the least, you know, who are the sickest, who are the craziest. So they're all, we're all looking at each other. You know, it's like boarding school ramped up on steroids. And there can be horrific bullying. There can also be wonderful support. Like, you know what each other's going through. But if you have a certain type of personality on the ward, then there is a lot of competitiveness. And I can imagine well how that plays out, you know, on the internet and social media. But none of the young women who I interviewed for the book said they'd experienced that. What they have is the problem with the wards where everyone's kind of competing with each other and swapping tips on how to eat the least. The way that you structure this book, and it's just really, really beautifully knitted together, is you're going back and forth between your own story, your own experience, and then really educating the reader into the nature of this disease in a way that surprised me. I, I just didn't know so much of what was in there. You really explain the way that like a lot of mental illnesses and anorexia overlaps and connects with other diseases, including autism and OCD and addiction. I would love for you to explain that a little bit more. Well, definitely for me, OCD. You know, OCD is a compulsion to do something nonsensical really over and over again. And by doing that action, you bring yourself a moment of self-soothing, really. And anorexia is like an OCD in that not eating is self-soothing to the anorexic. Um, it's also an addiction in that you become addicted to starvation. And in fact, in the first hospital, I was uh, we shared a ward with the addicts. And 
you know, an addict will do something over and over, you know, that kind of Einstein definition of insanity. You do something over and over knowing the result, you know, you take drugs over and over knowing how, you know, you're going to get wrecked or you're drunk. And anorexic too, you know, you're going to keep starving and eventually someone will put you in hospital, um, but you can't stop yourself doing it. It's a compulsion. It's a compulsion as much as drug taking and OCD. And the autism thing, I hadn't really known about that until I started talking to doctors for the book. Um, but there has been a theory around for a few decades that anorexia is a female version of autism because the tests for autism are really geared towards little boys and little girls are better at mimicking social cues. And then when they get to adolescence, when the social cues become more complex, they kind of, you know, sort of internally combust a bit and they try to wield control over something as their body changes. And so they control their body. So a lot of anorexia wards now are autism friendly. The patients can have more control over their meals. There isn't so much shouting. The colors are more muted. And then also gender dysphoria. So is another obvious sort of issue where there's an overlap with anorexia in regards to teenage girls. Yeah, that's one of the most sharply argued and strong parts of the book is the way you illuminate how the teenage girls suffering from gender dysphoria right now share so many of the core fears, at least in your experience, of anorexic girls. Fear of womanhood, fear of growing up, fear of going through puberty. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I hadn't really expected to write about gender in this book, but as I was writing it, the story came out that um, disproportionate number of kids at JIDS, which is the NHS's um, only gender clinic for children and young people in England and Wales, yeah, a disproportionate number of young girls, uh, sort of 14-year-old girls, really, um, about 74%. And that figure struck me as really telling because the number of the proportion that of girls at an eating disorder clinic is 90 to 95%. So I did think of, you know, I thought I need to investigate this. So I interviewed three former doctors uh, from JIDS, as well as some adolescent psychiatrists and psychologists and neurologists. And one of them, Dr. Anna Hutchinson, and said to me is, you know, every generation has a symptom pool where they, which they can go to in order to express their certain emotions. So first there was anorexia, then there was bulimia, then there was cutting in terms of fear of growing up and anxiety and unhappiness. Now there's gender. And, you know, I live in a part of London where there are a lot of girls experimenting with gender and I see them walking around with, you know, their breasts are bound down and they're wearing baggy clothes and they looked so much like I did and the girls I was in hospital with did. And, you know, it, it sort of frustrates me a little bit when sort of adult men tell me, you know, that, you know, to make this comparison is bigoted. I, you know, I'm not a member of the LGBT community. I don't know what I'm talking about. And I understand that kind of anxiety, but I, you know, I think certain things can be reflective of, of different issues. And I do know what it's like to be an unhappy teenage girl and to be scared of your own developing body and to think that your body is making promises that you didn't intend to make to onlookers. And um, it's just so obvious to me that the anxiety about womanhood and what it means and anxiety about femininity and feeling that you don't fit into it is what's driving the disproportionate number of girls to want to identify out of being women. The stereotype among both of these populations, teenage girls who are experiencing gender dysphoria and teenage girls who are experiencing anorexia, is that they are, as the title of your book has it, good they're good girls. They are smart. They're high achieving. They want to be perfect. They're people pleasing. How much of that stereotype matches the reality of what you experienced? Um, well, it certainly matched me. Um, and it matched a lot of 
the girls I was in hospital with, but definitely not all of them. It was at the private hospital I went to, the first one. But then after that, when I went into the NHS system, you know, I would meet girls who'd been in care all their lives, girls who'd grown up on the streets. Um, you know, one woman who was I was in with was homeless. Also, a lot of the patients I met had been sick for decades. I was often the youngest there by several decades. I knew women in hospital who were in their 50s. So there is, there is some truth to it, definitely the kind of the good, high-achieving, privately educated girl. Um, but it's not the full truth. And it, you know, it shouldn't obscure that there's more to the story than that. Earlier in the conversation, you talk about how the word normal was the trigger, but it could have been any trigger, could have been any sentence because the buildup, you know, inside of you was sort of preparing you for whatever that trigger was going to be. I remember getting my period for the first time and being horrified. Like there was nothing like it was just it felt like a catastrophe. And yet, you know, I experienced the normal discomforts that I think a lot of girls like me experienced and went on with my life. You know, I didn't develop anorexia. I didn't develop bulimia. I didn't ever think I was a man. I definitely chafed against the ideas of what it meant to be a woman, but I sort of moved through it. In many ways, I think you and I grew up in a similar way. We have, you know, married parents who who seem to love each other, Jewish families wanting us to be successful, but certainly not unbelievably overbearing. Like what was, how do you understand what created that bomb inside of you differently than other girls who had maybe similar experiences to you? It is hard. And I think this just shows that a lot of anorexia is nature rather than necessarily nurture. I mean, to me, I think the two most formative experiences of my childhood, which led to this happening to me, were, you know, seemingly really innocuous things were one when I was very little in, in kindergarten. And um, I told my teacher that I hated myself because I wasn't able to do the splits. And, um, and she burst into tears. And this both kind of at first, this kind of, you know, shocked me. And then it terrified me because I thought, oh, I, I'm not allowed to say how I feel because it destroys people. And then on, I really I felt really kind of silenced in a way. Like I used to have dreams where I couldn't speak because I was so scared of upsetting people with how I felt. And because of that, I, I was always trying to think of the right thing to say that people would like. And this just used to give me enormous anxiety. And then when I was in about the second or third grade, I found a way to soothe this anxiety, although I would never, you know, put it in any of those terms. What I, what I felt was this bad feeling in my chest, was how I used to put it to myself. And I found a way of getting rid of the bad feeling. And I would go into the school bathroom and I didn't know what I was doing, but what I was actually doing was masturbating. And, you know, people get a bit weirded out when they when they hear about children masturbating. And it's why I put this in the book. It's not from some like desire to talk about this to the world or some exhibitionism, but I think this is important is that a lot of children do masturbate and it's got nothing to do with pornography or sex. It's a way of self-soothing. It's a way of calming themselves down. It's like something that anxious children figure out how to do. And when adults catch them and freak out, that can be incredibly mm -hmm. damaging. Um, and that is what happened to me as a teacher came in and caught me and was like horrified and really made it clear mm -hmm. that I was doing something disgusting and took me to the nurse to say, you know, examine her down there. Something's wrong. And that taught me, all right, physically, you know, mm -hmm. like basically making yourself feel good is bad. 
And those two lessons just haunted me. I couldn't even speak about them for about 20 years. I thought about them all the time. It wasn't like a conscious, I mustn't talk about this. It was just like, I've done something really shameful. Like I made a grown-up cry and then I did something gross in the bathroom and I must never talk about this. And those are like, without a doubt in my mind, are directly led to the anorexia. The way you talk about that early moment in the book is almost like a demonic possession. You know, and it's a demon that seems to hold on to you for a very, very long time. I think there are probably people who are listening in who have daughters, maybe even some sons that are in the grip of this kind of possession. Tell us about your, I don't know, your 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 way out of its grip. I was going to say your journey out of it, but it's really not that. It's how did you release yourself from its grip ultimately? Well, it's um, when people ask me, you know, what they can do and it's like so unhelpful because really the thing that set me off being recovered, it was as random as the trigger that sent me into it, which was I was in hospital on my eighth admission. I was in nine admissions in total. And, um, and I saw the woman opposite me who was in her early thirties and she was, you know, we were having breakfast and she was crying hysterically because she felt there was more butter on her toast than on other people's. And this was like a very common occurrence at every meal, someone would freak out because they felt they had more than everyone else. But for some reason, this time, this thought just came into my head when I just thought, I will not be having temper tantrums about toast when I'm 32 years old, which is how old she was. And it's not like from that moment, I was like, great, I'm all better. Like far from it. I, you know, left hospital and I went back in a few months later, but there was something, it was just like a glimmer of light. And, but the main thing for me was that my parents never took me out of school. Everybody else I knew who was in hospital, who's about my age, they'd been taken out of school because in the nineties, the theory was you should focus on your recovery. But miraculously, my parents didn't. And the therapist who I was with until the end was a really strong advocate of me maintaining my studies. I was in hospital for the first two years of GCSE. And I'm trying to think of what the equivalent of that is in America, I guess that's eighth and ninth grades. And then no, ninth and so anyway, something like that, eighth and ninth, ninth and 10th grades, and then most of 11th grade. But I would do, my parents would bring me my homework on the weekends and I would give them what I'd done that week and they'd take that back to school and I would post, you know, mail things to the school. And so I kept up my schoolwork and I did my GCSEs, which are like PSATs in hospital. So doing that helped me keep a foot in the outside world. And if I hadn't done that, I would probably either be dead or just still going in and out of hospital. One of the things you describe that moment of watching this woman who's more than a you know decade and a half older than you wailing about the toast. And then you sort of describe, this is the way I thought about it, the way that your compulsions, the way that your compulsive mind sort of migrated to other things. It went from the starvation, then it went to OCD, like washing your hands, then it went to drug. Talk to us about how you understand the cast of mind that you have and and how it migrated and where it lives now. Because <laughs> I'm really curious about that, Hadley. There is something quite self-punishing in my mentality, and I don't really know why it is. Yeah, I, I sort of think about myself as someone who makes life hard for themselves in a lot of ways. So I got out of hospital and I had to, I couldn't lose any weight. My my therapist said, if I lost weight, then I wouldn't be checked back into hospital. They would tell my parents to hire a nurse to look after me. And this just horrified me. First of all, my parents seeing me eating at home with a nurse and secondly, them having to pay for it. Like all of it was just humiliating. So I very diligently maintained my weight, but I then became obsessed with the idea of of extra calories somehow getting on my hands or in my mouth. So I just used to spend hours every day washing my hands and my hands would be bleeding everywhere. And 
you know, I've just, when I look back at my old teenage diaries, there's just blood stains everywhere because my hands were just constantly bleeding like Edward Scissorhands. I mean, I really did look like Edward Scissorhands. I had very patchy hair and these bleeding hands. Um, and then I went to this boarding school. It was kind of a special, sort of a special needs boarding school. So I couldn't really wash my hands all the time there. And so I then became obsessed with studying, which sounds like a really healthy thing. But I did just used to sit in my room and stare at my books for about 18 hours a day. And that worked. And then I got into university and I did it at university. And then I finished university and I thought, oh my God, what do I obsess over now? And, um, and then I, I mean, for a while it was really terrible drug addict boyfriends. And then I realized, hey, I don't need these middlemen boyfriends. And then I just became a drug addict myself. So and that went on for a long time, to be honest. That went on for like a decade of just being a mess. Like I, I, there was something in me. I just couldn't, couldn't sort of look at life face on. Like I couldn't look at the sun straight on. I always had to kind of skew it somehow and make myself really miserable. And what changed then, you know, it was, I sound like a Daily Mail columnist here when I say this, but what changed eventually was I had children and I, I couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't do it anymore because you had found a meaning beyond yourself or you couldn't do it anymore simply because you were too tired to pull off these habits? <laughs> oh, no, no. I could I could keep that like physical exhaustion is not an issue. It was, I mean, first of all, it was 20 years at that point that I'd left hospital for the first time. I had my twins when I was 37 and then my third one when I was 41. I, was, I didn't want them to have this as a, as a parent. Um, I'd seen too many girls have mentally unwell mothers and seen the shadow that cast over them. So just like with a real conscious effort, I just thought children learn by copying and I'm not going to give them this to copy. I, I, I'm not doing this anymore. I want to get to some audience questions, then I'll ask you some more of my own. This is from someone who's anonymous. When I was 15, this person writes, I told my mother that I was thinking about food too much. She told me that it was normal and that all women think about food obsessively. Of course, she eventually understood the gravity of the situation once I stopped eating completely. But I'm wondering, and I, I wonder this too, where where is the line? Women think about food a lot. Where does being a woman who cares about their image end and anorexia begins? Uh, it, it is. Well, you know, anorexia is when your life is controlled by food. And I know there are a lot of women who feel that their lives are controlled by food. You know, so many of my female friends would, you know, Google a restaurant menu before booking there, or, you know, things like that. But, you know, it's, it's when your life is really controlled by food and eating, when your mood is entirely determined by food and eating, when you can't eat spontaneously, when you know what you're going to eat from the minute you wake up, when you rearrange your life around food and eating and weight. What you want is to have control over your life, not for food to have control over your life. So for me, that's the line. But also, yeah, I agree. I mean, this is the problem is that, you know, a normal anorexia is to a certain degree, certain aspects of it are normalized by female behavior. So many people I know have little sprinklings of eating disorders. And that's what makes it so tenacious. And that also explains why, you know, so many women are predisposed to it. Janie asked this, and it's connected to a question I had asked you earlier. After you sort of snapped out of your anorexia. You didn't snap out of it, but took a while. You struggled with other addictive behaviors. Do you think that the root cause of your problems, it's a good question, wasn't tackled in your initial treatment for the eating disorder? Uh, almost certainly. And it's almost impossible to tackle the root cause because, you know, so much of the, the kind of the help is focused on refeeding, which takes a long time. And, you know, that sounds a bit brutal in a way, but you, you have to get the patient out of danger. And also the patient's brain isn't going to function properly when they're severely underweight. And yeah, I th you know, there were certain elements that were definitely tackled by my therapist. Um, and she made me stop hating myself quite so much. But what I didn't have was any self-respect. I just kept basically treating myself like garbage and making my life as miserable as possible for reasons that I still find 
hard to understand, but I don't do it to myself anymore. So that's the main thing. You encountered a, a real range of different personas. There's a nurse that you describe kind of like, you know, Trunchbull. There's a kind of perverted, uh, exploitative doctor came, called Dr. R, but there's also this kind of incredible woman who's a therapist called JK. If you could, without going into every single detail of all of the all of the people that helped you or didn't, what were the characteristics of the ones that ultimately did help you over time? Um, so there were there was my um, therapist, yeah, JF, and um, Dr. Treasure, who I interviewed in the book, who really did help me. And then there were a lot of doctors who really didn't. And the ones who did were ones who looked at me as an individual, who listened to me as an individual, who also really understood how the anorexic mind works. Uh, it's really amazing to me. Like one of the things I found while researching the book is how consistent anorexia is. You know, little things that I would do and, and think, you know, other girls today still do and think, and girls 800 years ago would do and think. Um, Give us an example. So when I was first starting to not eat, um, I would, you know, I'd had these mental tricks to make myself not want the food. I would say, you know, that, you know, that cake is covered in snot. Someone sneezed all over. It's disgusting. That cake is dirty. And then I read about one of the medieval girls who wrote in her diary, you know, I tell myself the, the food is covered in bugs. And mm. it's just, it's amazing, like how we would think in the same patterns. And when I went back to one of the hospitals that I was treated in, and I saw the girls all sitting in the chairs after lunch, all of them jiggling their feet and moving their wrists around and just kind of doing anything they could for movement to um, burn calories, which is exactly what I would do. And when I was not eating the first time around, I used to go down to my parents' fridge at night and like smell all the food until something in my head said, no, no, there are calories in the particles that you're inhaling. You must stop that. And then one of the women I had read the book, um, a journalist friend said that her daughter who's anorexic did that too. So I just find that just completely fascinating. It's, it's almost like, you know, the physical displays of illness that are consistent from, you know, one person to the next. It's the same with the mental elements of the illness. They're consistent from one person to the next, even though we're not like writing about them, that we're not picking, learning about them from TikTok or whatever. We just, it's just part of the illness. Hadley, I was taking a minute to look into the book and maybe you could help direct me. There's a, there's an incredible few pages where you're explaining how the anorexic's mind works. And you're kind of giving the translation of the way normal statements that most of us would hear as a compliment get reconfigured and distorted to be something so horrible. Do you know? Do you know around what chapter that's on? Uh, yeah, I think it's. Um, it's just so sad that I know this off the top of my head. <laughs> I think it's chapter <laughs> no, eight. No, it's not. It's chapter okay. eight. Yeah, it's just quite powerful to hear the way that you heard things. Um, here we go. It's an, it's it's called anorexia speaks. Someone says to you, don't you want to be healthy again? And you hear, don't you want to be fat again? Someone says, have you tried swimming? I find that really improves my appetite. You hear it as you need to do more exercise. Someone says, I don't know how you have the energy to do so much exercise. You were a compulsive exerciser. You were fainting from it. And this is what you hear. You're extremely impressive. And I also am watching everything you do. So you better keep doing it or I will comment on your laziness. Someone says to you, I understand what you're going through. I worry about my weight too. And you hear everyone thinks like you, they're just not strong enough to follow through on it. And it goes on and on and on like that. I mean, how do you break that? Um, I, there is no kind of conscious effort to break it. I think there was a certain point that I realized, you know, I used to use some of those comments in a way as an excuse to not put on weight. Like I remember once when I came home from hospital and I was, I still had to put on about 30 pounds at home and someone came up to me on the street and said, oh, you're so lucky. You're so thin. You must be able to wear whatever you want. 
And I went home and said to my mother, see, I shouldn't be putting on more weight. Everybody wants to look like me. And there is that temptation to use the things that people say to you as an excuse to to not put on weight. There was, But at a certain point, I think when I really wanted to go to university, I realized I had to stop listening to the anorexic voice inside my head that was either picking up all the bad things people said to me or else twisting all the nice things people were saying to me and realized I had to do this for myself. Like if I really wanted to be free of hospital and nurses and, you know, daily weigh-ins at doctor's surgeries, I just had to keep going. You know, I, I read articles by people saying, you know, it's, it's terrible to put calorie counts on menus of restaurants because that's really triggering and upsetting to anorexics and people with eating disorders. And I, of course, I understand what they're saying. But I also think the world, you know, if you're looking for an excuse to be upset, there's like a million things around you. And the fact is, obesity is still a bigger problem in the world than anorexia. That's why the calorie counts are there. And you can't expect the world to remake itself for an anorexia's, you know, comfort in a way for an anorexic, you know, ease of mind. You have to learn to blinker things and tune things out. And, and that's just the truth. Raul writes this, disordered eating is one of the hardest problems to deal with because you can't just stop eating the way you can stop smoking or drinking. <laughs> How do you personally approach food today, he asks. Yeah, it's hard in some ways. Um, you know, and I go through phases. I catch myself sometimes when I'm eating, you know, say the same lunch every day. And I think I can't get into this. I, I can't go down this again. So I am conscious about not falling into ruts, but I do eat spontaneously. I really do. I don't know what I'm eating from the moment I wake up. But one thing I, I do know about myself is I'm very good at taking the joy out of food for myself. And there is still something in my mind I have a low threshold for disgust, if that makes sense. Like suddenly something can look really disgusting to me or a food can sound really disgusting to me. It's got nothing to do with calories or fattening. It could be a piece of fruit. And I have to either really like grit my teeth and ignore it or quickly eat something else. Uh, you know, it doesn't become an excuse not to eat at all. So there is something in me that like kills the joy of food, but I, I don't give in to it, if that makes sense. Are you able to find joy in food? <laughs> I do find, I definitely find joy in food. And um, there are foods that I, I love that I probably eat too much of. I don't mean in like a fattening way, but in a kind of lazy person's cooking way. Like left to my own devices, I just eat spaghetti and tomato sauce every night. So, you know, and I love it. And I have my favorite restaurants that I go to. I'm going to go to my favorite restaurant tomorrow for the day my book comes out in the UK. And I do enjoy that. And I don't worry about traveling or going away anymore. I can always find something I enjoy. But do I eat, like, I don't know. I mean, it's so, like, there is no normal way of eating now, but like, would I eat, I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think what I wouldn't eat. But like, like yesterday I went out with my children we went to the bakery and we all bought cupcakes and we ate cupcakes in the park like I can I do that like it's not you can do that yeah that's fine and also I want them to see me doing that you know I want the, I don't want them to grow up thinking that it's normal for women to restrict or to be like oh I don't eat sweet things or I don't eat dessert like I don't want that to be the model of a woman that they see in front of them how often Hadley I was thinking about this as you read your book do you look back at your life and think about think about the amount of time that they stole from you. Oh, God. I used to think about that a lot. And I used to really regret it and just thought, you know, I didn't have the teenage years that other people did. You know, I didn't kiss a boy until I was about 19 years old. Didn't have, the, you know, I used to not be able to go back to my university town because I found it so depressing because I didn't have the university experience that, you know, I could have done. On the other hand, I feel, and this is not me saying people should become anorexic, but I feel like for me, the experience taught me to not waste any time you know, life is super precious and to not waste time being someone who you don't want to be. 
you know, to make life good for yourself. And those are, those are good lessons to learn. And I have tried to apply them since my late thirties. <laughs> it took a while, but better to learn then than never, I guess. Last question here. When, when I met you, it was in the context of the other wonderful book you wrote, House of Glass. I experienced you the way everyone's experiencing you now, like completely polished, a world away from, well, a world, frankly, just a world away from the cocaine, the starvation, the meaningless sex, the seven body piercings you got in one day, which we haven't even gotten to. You know, like I would just imagine that sharing this kind of vulnerable personal history with the world would be something very scary. And I'm wondering if you could just end by talking a little bit about why you decided to write this book and overcoming maybe even the shame of, of sharing this in such a public way. Yeah, there was a lot of shame about this part of my life for a long time, which is why I didn't talk about it before. Um, but what I realized the older I get is that I'm not very special. Like, if, if I've gone through something, if I've felt, felt something, experienced something, then chances are other people have too, which is why, for example, I wrote about the whole childhood masturbation thing, which is something I could never have imagined, you know, 15, 25 years ago ever sharing with anybody, let alone the public. But I thought, you know, this is something that I bet has happened to a lot of little kids and a lot of little girls. And that's a great, I think shame is born so much out of feeling unique, like you're uniquely bad, you're uniquely disgusting. And the older I get, the realize, the more I realize how many collective experiences we all have and collective feelings. And therefore I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to share it, you know? And also I do think, I mean, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Barry. I have this theory that it's a very Jewish American thing to want to show your <laughs> most disgusting side. Like that's like totally what Curb Your Enthusiasm is about. You know, it's like so much about like what Woody Allen's movies used to be about, you know, it's all about like, I'm going to show you how gross I am. Like, you know, or Philip Roth, you know, like I masturbate all the time or I think about younger women or blah, 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 blah like all that. I think there is something like, I'm going to show you how gross I am and, you know, see the reaction. And there's part of me that wonders if I do that in some weird way. Like if I'm the well, I, I have to say, as I was reading the book, I'm like, this is so not British. I mean, <laughs> not 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 to stereotype in any way, but there's something like very that felt to me. I don't know if it was Jewish or American, but very American about it. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Even though I haven't, you know, lived. Well, I lived in America for three years when in my 30s, but I left America when I was 11, really. But I think there is something. I don't know. It's funny. I, there's something quite. Jewish about it, just like, and also just quite. I mean, maybe it's just the therapy as well, which is also very Jewish. Like you talk about this stuff. Like I'm used to talking about this stuff, but I don't feel anxious about this. I felt way more anxious about House of Glass, um, which is a story about my grandmother and her three brothers, because I was so worried about I got the history wrong. Whereas with yeah. this, I know I didn't get the history wrong because it's me. So that's much more relaxing in a lot of ways. Also, a powerful reminder in this book uh, for anyone who's watching this and still can form good habits because you're young, keep diary entries. It's kind of unbelievable how much Hadley was able to recover from that period because of those diary entries she mentioned. Um, it's seven o'clock over there. Hadley needs to go make spaghetti and marinara sauce for herself and her kids. Um, it's early here in LA, but I will say my thank you to Hadley Friedman. And here is her incredible book that I read in one sitting, Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia. Get it wherever you get your books. Thank you so much to our audience. And thank you, of course, to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Catherine Hughes. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com. 
And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.